You're listening to an all-new episode of Self-Made Strategies. Visit selfmadestrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. Our guest on this episode is a 20-year veteran in mergers and acquisitions. She has sold hundreds of businesses. She's been recognized as the leading authority on buying, selling, fixing, and growing businesses. Michelle Seiler Tucker sees opportunity where many are discouraged or have given up. Her passion is to save businesses that might otherwise close. She closes nearly 98% of all written offers and on average obtains 20 to 40% above the asking price for her clients. Here for your listening pleasure are the self-made strategies of Michelle Seiler Tucker. Now those are those are all before COVID stats. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're we're all certainly struggling with that. So we'll, we'll look to a little bit of advice from an industry legend and pro. A lot of what we're going to talk about on this episode involves Seiler Tucker's GPS exit model, so that you can plan your exit strategy how to deal with evaluations, building your business to sell, a business's life cycle and how that might impact mergers and acquisitions, the STI six P's, how to buy and sell companies, how to grow through acquisitions, which is an important business strategy I think that more business owners should really be looking at, how to connect your business with a nonprofit organization and that how that can help your business uh, amplify its messaging, the branding ladder, the 10 biggest profit mistakes that businesses make, and how to create a bidding war, which Michelle is a pro at. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Michelle, how are you? I'm great, Tony. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you for joining us. Love the background. Thank you. Coordinated outfit and all. For those of you who are listening, you can check out the video version of this podcast episode on the Self-Made Strategies YouTube channel. We'll drop a link in the show notes if you're listening on your favorite podcast listening app so that you can watch it. Really psyched to hear more about your background. So how did you get into the M&A world and where you are today? Yeah, so, it, you know, it was kind of by, um, it, it, you know, I didn't wake up one day and say, oh, I'm going to sell businesses, <laughs> you know, but I have always been an entrepreneur. I've always owned small businesses and I knew I always wanted to really be my own boss. Um, but I did kind of get sucked into corporate America when I went to work for Xerox. And I was there for about six months until they started nicknaming me the closer. So anytime somebody couldn't close a deal, they would call me in and I would come in and close the deal. And then my supervisor came to me about six months after I had been there and said, Michelle, you really need to throw your name in the hat in an interview for the regional vice president position for Xerox. She goes, you're not going to get it. You'll never get it, but you should do it anyway. I'm like, why would I, why would I spend so much energy on something I'm never going to get? Right. And because it was a three month process. And she said, because you will learn more through this process than ever before, because you're, you're going to be interviewing, doing Q and A, doing presentations, doing, you know, demonstrations in front of high level executives. What better way to learn and gain their feedback? And I said, you know, you have a good point. So I'll do it. So I went ahead and, and interviewed and she's right. It was a three month grueling process right. and I ended up getting it. Wow. <laughs> I ended, so, so I guess I really am the closer because I was able to close my way into that position because I'd only been with Xerox for six months and I was up against people who had been there for five, 10, 15 years. So I ended up getting a position, you know. But be careful what you wish for, right? <laughs> so yeah. I got the position, but I was doing things I didn't like to do. I am a people person. I love people. I love the art of the deal. I love selling. I love helping, um, you know, determining what a client's needs are, most importantly, what their wants are. I love handling objections. You know, I love finding solutions. And I love building relationships that last a lifetime. You can do that when you're in sales. When you're in upper management, it's hard to do that. You don't have the interaction with the clients like you do when you're direct in sales. So in corporate America, when you're a vice president, 
you have meetings to have meetings to have more meetings to have more meetings to follow up and then do all these reports. And I'm a typical salesperson. I hate reports. <laughs> so anyway, so, um, but it was a great paying position. It was a six-figure position with great benefits. And I was moving up to Xerox ladder rather quickly, um, but I still really missed entrepreneurship. So I decided I'm going to look for, you know, um, a franchise, something I can operate on the side, but still keep my day job. And I stumbled across a franchise that had a couple of locations. They had two locations. My husband actually knew the partner. And I approached him and said, look, I'd like to buy your franchise and operate on the side. And they said, look, we know of you. We know your husband. We know your nickname is The Closer. <laughs> and because I'm in New Orleans, it's a small town. And they said, we want you to uh, partner with us and then we'll give you a franchise. So I said, okay, I'll try it out for six months because I'm not going to leave Xerox, my six-figure position for a company that's not successful. So let's try it for six months. I'll go to franchise shows. I'll do trade shows. I'll host events, you know, nights and weekends, keep my day job and see how it goes. Within six months, I sold so many franchises. I made more money in six months than I made an entire year at Xerox, probably two years. So anyway, I'm like, you know what? It's time to leave. So after I've been in that position for six months, I left and um, went into franchise development, franchise consulting, franchise sales. So that started my franchise development career. And, but the company, the company fell into the pattern that most business owners fall into. And this is a good lesson, business lesson for people to listen to is that a lot of business owners concentrate on marketing, right? Marketing sales, marketing sales, marketing sales, marketing sales. You have to have marketing. You have to have sales. You have to have cash coming through the door. However, you have to build a solid foundation. If you don't build a solid foundation, then you're not going to be able to handle the business that you're bringing in. And then your walls are going to come crashing down. The ceiling's going to fall in. Your clients are going to hate you. <laughs> They're going to tell everybody that they hate you. And you could go out of business very quickly. So companies really have to take a step back and build a solid foundation on what we call the next at rich, the six P's. And if they can build a solid foundation on the six P's, then they can handle the business when the business comes in. So, so many business owners make the mistake of not really building the foundation and just going out and getting the clients. And then they provide horrible customer service or they overpromise and underdeliver, or, you know, um, they just don't do anything. They don't take care of the client. And so you can't do that. You got to build the foundation first. It's like a house, you know, when you build a exactly. house, you know, if you don't make sure, especially if you live where I live in New Orleans, that your house is almost hurricane proof, <laughs> you know, then it's going to come crumbling down. So very important to build the business on the six Ps. So anyway, they didn't do that. They were overpromising, underdelivering. I'm on team franchisee, not team franchisor. And they're like, well, you're a partner with us. You need to be on our side. I'm like, no, I need to be on the client side. These are my friends. I went to their weddings. I went to the hospital when they had babies. I went to their birthday parties. I stayed at their house. No, I'm team franchisee. And it just became crystal clear to me that our ethics, our, our values, our core values were not aligned. And I'm all customer service. And they're not. They're all about profit, you know, money, 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 and not really delivering. Um, and, you know, and my big thing was, look, you're going to have a class action suit. You need to take care of this. And I don't want to be part of it. So buy me out because I don't want to be part of a class action suit. So anyway, I ended up severing ties with them. And I'm like, well, what am I going to do next? So I said, I'll transition to selling businesses. How much harder can it be than selling franchises? <laughs> and that became that that's what led to my mergers and acquisitions career. I started out selling small businesses and then very quickly started selling businesses $10 million and up. And very quickly learned that, hey, by the way, Steve Forbes, who everyone has heard of, says eight out of 10 businesses will not sell. And right away, I learned that is true. <laughs> so I have, to, I have to help fix these businesses. Right. I have to help grow these businesses. Right. businesses. So I really specialize in buying, selling, fixing, growing companies. You know, I buy businesses and flip them. Plus, I partner with business owners, investing my money, my time, my energy, my core competencies to help them build a business that's actually sellable for their desired price tag. So that's really what led to my journey. That's wonderful. Great story. Very impactful and empowering, I think, for those who are listening or watching, that you can take these, uh, what some people would consider traditional success, 
and sometimes look at the other opportunities that are out there and find an even better one for you. You mentioned the six P's in there, and you talked a little bit about the business life cycle and how to build a business to sell. So I want to kind of shift to that just just really quickly and kind of talk about that a little bit. What are the STI six P's? Sure. So I'll do a high level and then I'll do eye level because I don't think, you know, I think it needs to be explained too instead of just told. Um, but the number one P is people. You don't build a business, you build people and people build the business. So many businesses are not sellable because the business is 100% dependent upon the owner. Chiropractic clinics with one chiropractor, dental practices with one dentist, medical practices with one physician, interior decorator practice with one interior decorator, you know, construction business with one contractor and all independent contractors. These are businesses that are very difficult to sell. And I could go on and on and on with this list. Um, and then they're difficult to sell because you pull that owner out, you don't have a business anymore. So the number one thing is people because buyers want to buy a business, not a job. So number one is people. You got to have the right people in the right seats. And you have to ask the who question, Tony. Who opens the door? Who handles customer service? Who handles logistics? Who handles manufacturing? Who handles customer disputes? Who handles accounting? Who handles legal? Who handles um, IT protection? IP protection? Who handles your IT? Who handles, you know, if, if you get a virus? Who handles um, returns? Who handles all these different aspects of a business and some who's are, the list is quite long. The clue, Tony, is you should never be next to the who. <laughs> you should never be next to the who. So your name should never be next to the who. Business owners are typically wearing, you know, 25 different hats, 50 different hats. And they're doing accounting, they're doing this and they're doing that and they're doing all these different things. And you can't be an expert of anything if you're doing everything yourself. You have to focus on your strengths and hire your weaknesses. Focus on what you're the best at. If you're the best at marketing, then you do the marketing and delegate everything else. If you're the best at um, negotiations, like I'm the best at negotiations, then I delegate everything out and, and handle negotiations. Okay. So figure out what you're the best at and delegate the rest. Also, if you're trying to sell a business for, you know, 2 million, 3 million, 5 million, 10 million, 20 million, 50 million, you need to have a layer of management. You need to have a layer, you know, like a liaison. You got to have a COO, chief operating officer, chief financial officer, you know, you got to have a layer of management because buyers, again, want to buy a business that's operating and it's not dependent upon that owner. That owner has to be able to take a six-month vacation and that business never misses a beat. Number two is product. Ask yourself, is your business, is your, is your product industry on the way up or on the way out? Now, you might have answered my industry is on the way up before COVID but now it's on the way out. So many industries that were doing great before COVID are now struggling and vice versa. So ask yourself, do you have an Amazon or do you have a Blockbuster? If you have a Blockbuster, it's not time to close up shop. <laughs> it's not time to file bankruptcy. It's time to align yourself with an expert, somebody who's been down the path you want to travel and somebody who can see things that you cannot see. Because when you're in your fog, it's foggy, right? And it's hard to see things that are right in front of you when you're in the middle of the chaos. So you need an outsider's perspective to help you to read the warning signs. It's hard to read the label from the inside of the bottle. So if, you're, if you have a Blockbuster, so ask yourself, do you have an Amazon or a Blockbuster? If you have a Blockbuster, Tony, you got to pivot. And um, you gotta uh, you gotta become transformational and get out of being transactional because transactional it's like being on a roller it's like it's like being on a hamster wheel right we just do the same thing over and over and over and over transformational is where we stop start stop ask these questions so that we can transform our business here's three questions you should ask number one what business are you in. Number two, what do you do really, really well? Number three, what business should you be in? And many companies that are, are doing this right now. Um, let me give you an example. Amazon 
They asked they asked themselves these three questions when they were in business. Number one, they asked themselves, what business are we in? What business did they start in? Book sales. Book sales. Yeah, exactly. So they said, okay, we're in a book sales business. And then they said, well, what do we do really, really well? They said, you know what? We do fulfillment really, really well. Exactly. What business should we be in? We should be in a fulfillment business, not just books. Those three questions is what transformed Amazon from a bookseller to a multi-billion dollar worldwide conglomerate that they are today. Amazon is a company that single-handedly changed the way that consumers purchase products, right? Amazon's put a lot of businesses out of business. Yeah. Completely changed the way that we look at shipping infrastructure, our expectations as consumers about two-day and same-day delivery. Completely changed the game. Amazon has spoiled us. So when we go to another retailer and I say, oh, it takes three days. Three days? I'm Amazon Prime. I can get it in two days and free. Exactly. I don't have to pay shipping. So that's what happened. You got to ask yourself those three transformational questions. And you probably need an outsider's perspective to help you do it because if it was clear, you probably would have already seen it. (laughs) Does that make sense? All right. So the third P is processes. Now, processes are extremely important, especially when it comes to ensuring customer satisfaction. Processes should be designed with the client experience in mind. If you don't provide a wow experience for your clients, somebody else will be happy to. So processes should always be designed with the customer experience in mind. They should be productive, efficient, well-documented, and clients and, and all the employees should be trained on such. Let me give you a quick example about processes. Did you ever watch the movie, The Founder? The McDonald's story? No, I haven't. The McDonald's story, the McDonald's brothers, right? Everybody thinks Ray Kroc started McDonald's. Ray Kroc did not start McDonald's. The McDonald's brothers started McDonald's back in the 40s. So I'm going to tell you a quick story. So back in the 40s, um, they had drive-up restaurants like a Sonic, right? Or where the waiters, waitresses would come out on roller skates. The problem back in the 40s is the food was always cold. The order was usually wrong and it took forever. And customers hated it. It was a bad customer experience. So McDonald's said, we want to create a great customer experience and we want our clients to obtain the following. We want them to have great tasting food. It's hot and it comes out in two minutes or less. That's their mission statement. That's their customer objective. So how do they design processes around that objective? They went out to an empty tennis court, took all their employees, went out to an empty tennis court, spent the day out there, mapped out the process, erased it, mapped it out again, did it again with chalk. And they finally said, okay, this is our process. This is who takes the order. This is who takes the client's orders, who toasts the buns, who cooks the burgers, who puts the pickles on the bun and gives it to the consumer in two minutes or less, okay? The processes were designed around the customer's experience. Most business owners never think about the customer's experience when they design processes. Most processes are designed to alienate and upset customers versus making them happy and create a wow experience. Now, those processes for McDonald's is why you can eat at McDonald's in Hong Kong or McDonald's in New Zealand or Australia or America and receive the exact same experience no matter where you go because of those processes designed with the customer experience in mind. McDonald's doesn't even have the best food. <laughs> That's true, <laughs> you know? right. Exactly. I mean, it's not about a gourmet meal. It's about a quick meal that you know what exactly what you're getting and they're wowing you within those expectations, exactly to your point. Wow. And you know, like Burger King does the same thing. Whataburger does the same thing. So you really have to make sure you focus on your processes and most importantly, make sure they're designed with the customer experience in mind. And then the fourth P is proprietary. Six pillars to proprietary. So I'll go through them really quickly. (laughs) Number one is branding. The more well-branded your business is, the more money your business will sell for. As long as that brand is relevant, in the consumer's mind. For instance, how much money will you pay for Blockbuster? These days, next to nothing, right? These days, next to nothing because Blockbuster went bust. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So who's the biggest brand in the world? 
arguably Amazon, Apple, they're, they're all, Coca-Cola is up there. Well, you got all three, but Apple's the biggest. <laughs> but Apple is $389 billion. Wow. That is just for the name Apple. That is not including inventory assets, EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. That is just the brand. So build your brand, build your exit so you can exit rich. Then the other thing is trademarks are very valuable as well. Trademark your company name. We trademarked Exit Rich. I trademarked the ST6Ps. Trademark anything that's proprietary to you. Make sure you trademark your company name. If you have a podcast, get it trademarked. Because here's what can happen. And this is the biggest mistake that business owners make. As they'll be in business for five years and all of a sudden get a cease and desist letter, that they have to stop using that name because somebody else has that federal trademark. So a business owner, you know, we're, we're, entrepreneurs are quite stubborn, right? So we're stubborn and we just throw thousands upon thousands of dollars, hire an attorney who says, oh, I can fix this for you because <laughs> attorneys, you know. And and so what happens? They lose their money and they lose their company name yeah. because you're not going to win. It you're happens not all the win time. A trademark. It, it really does all happen the all the time. I, I actually do practice IP law. We we had this discussion before we jumped on the on the call. And one of the things I tell my clients, I have one right now that we're working very early in the process. I'm so proud of her because she's, she's killing it from that perspective. She recognized right away that her brand is the key core component to the business. And I do have clients, you're right, to your point, who just wait five years, six years, I don't have the money right now. And by the way, the trademarking process should not be that expensive. And if you don't have a couple of thousand dollars, should you really be in business, right? Because you have to think about these things as a core element. And a lot of That's times a you're very right. Very good point. Right. Should you be in business if you don't have that fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars? Right. Exactly. And you know, you can go on the government website and do it yourself, but I don't really trust that. I always say hire an attorney who can who specializes in IP. Spend the fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars, protect it because otherwise you could lose your company name and be in business for 10 years and have to start over from scratch. That's exactly right. Exactly right. It happens all the time. There's a copycat in New York or there's a copycat on the West Coast that you haven't been paying attention to because you don't have an IP strategy, first of all. And then, boom, all of a sudden you think you're going to go and register because of this or because of that. And if you end up in an IP litigation before the USPTO, it becomes tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars sometimes to defend that. So exactly right. Great, great point. Thank you. And, you know, it's happened to me twice where I've, I've received those letters. One was for the business doctors because I have the domain and I was and I have business doctors website I was using. And they sent me a cease and desist, uh, uh, desist letter. And I said, you know what? I don't really want that anyway. You can, I don't care because <laughs> you know, I really wasn't doing that much with it. Um, and then the biz, the biz radio show or something. So, but my company name, you know, my company name is my last name, Siler Tucker, but my books, all of my, um, you know, like the six P's, the STGPS exit model, my podcast, just go out and protect your stuff. The other thing that's important in proprietary is patents. And a lot of people say, oh, well, you should never get a patent because then people know what you're what you're doing, what you're processing now is out there for the market to see. Well, that's not true. How many of you watch Shark Tank, right? Do we watch Shark Tank? Yes. And what's the number one question every single shark asks? Do you have a patent? Do you have a patent? Do you have a patent? Do you have a patent pending? Do you have a utility patent? Get a patent. Patents, patents are worth a lot of money. We sold a company for $18 million. I had 18 patents, a million dollars of patents. So patents are very valuable. The other big thing that's really important too, is contracts, manufacturing contracts, distributor contracts, vendor contracts. If you have an exclusivity, like let's say that you are an area developer for a franchisor and you have five states, that's an exclusive contract, right? If you're a franchisor and you have franchisees, that's very valuable. But here's an, the most valuable contract of all are the client contracts. Any contracts you have with clients are very valuable because buyers want to buy a business with reoccurring revenue, with cash coming in, with work in progress. Here's the problem though with contracts. I would tell you probably about 100% of owners <laughs> don't have the transferability clause in the contract. They do not. Assignment it's a two-sentence clause. Yeah, exactly. Something and so 99 simple. 
It's not something simple. And 99.9% of all sales are asset sales, not stock sales. If you don't have that transferability clause, then the buyer either has to agree to do a stock sale and in all likelihood, most likelihood they won't, or you're going to have to go to customer and get all those contracts transferred. I'll tell you a quick, a very quick story to your point. Uh, we had a, a guest on the show a few, a few episodes ago that came, that started the website mainlinedelivery.com, which is a local, I'm in the Philly area up in the Northeast, a local delivery service, and they were able to sell it to Caviar because they had exclusivity in their area and Caviar, Grubhub, Caviar, et cetera, could not breach the market. They couldn't get into the market and they wanted to, right? And so to your point, exclusivity builds a significant amount of value. It does. Exclusivity builds a significant amount of value on contracts. We once had a business that we it was appraised in a $9.8 million dollar range. It was manufacturing. They had a couple of patents. Um, 9.8 million. And we had about 550 buyers on this particular business. We narrowed it down to 12 buyers. We had 12 LOIs. We had a buyer, we found a buyer that was a strategic, that had a very, not a competitor, but a strategic, had very similar products and services, but had been trying for years and years and years to get into BP. They could never get in the door of BP. Well, my seller, 65% of their revenue was tied up in the BP. That scared off most buyers. But this buyer is like, I don't care. Yeah, I want BP right? exactly. because I can get my products and services in there and ROI monetize. So I'll outbid everybody else. So we ended up paying $15 million for 70% of the business, which was 65% more wow. than what we appraised the business wow. for. Wow. It's amazing. Yeah. So contracts are very valuable. Just get that to that transferability clause. The other thing that's very valuable in proprietary, and that's why I said six pillars of proprietary, is databases. Most databases are overlooked and undervalued by MA advisors. And by most sellers are not really experienced on the value of a database. If you have a database, like I have 28,000 buyers in my database of businesses. If you have a database, that is a good database. It's an active database. It can be retargeted and repurposed. That's worth a lot of money. Facebook paid $19 billion for WhatsApp and WhatsApp was hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging money, hemorrhaging, but they had a billion dollars. So what, so Facebook knew they could monetize an ROI, that investment. The other big thing is what I call IP real estate. IP real estate is not your commercial building not your not your land, IP real estate. And let's say that Tony has cracked the code <laughs> and has the best weight loss program that's ever been invented. And he's got Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beck, Oprah Winfrey endorsing his product. Do you know how much money that's worth? <laughs> yeah. Especially I, to I'd strategic. I'd be up there with Apple for sure. You'd be up there with Apple because let's say strategic wants to buy you. Let's say yes. it's a company that doesn't that has doesn't have a diet company, but they have a supplement company. So it's very synergistic. And if your if your products are already on Oprah or on Glenn Beck, then guess what? They can probably get their products on there too because they already have that opening now. You know, or so let's say that you manufacture sofas and you're number one on Wayfair for sofas. Let's say that you manufacture vacuum cleaners and you have a patent on the best vacuum cleaner that's ever been invented and you've cornered the market on Amazon. This is what I call intellectual real estate that is worth a fortune because you can't just get it. You can't just obtain it. If you could, everybody would be doing it, right? Exactly. All right. So the fifth P, any questions on proprietary? No, I think that was really, really clear and very actionable. I'm hoping that everyone who's listening to this can go check out your website, check out your books. You're a two-time best-selling offer before we move on to the fifth P. And uh, you have a new book coming out, and we'll talk about that toward the end of the episode. It's for right sure. behind me in case I forget. Exit, Exit Rich. rich. <laughs> So, I, yeah, I said, you know, I'd rather exit rich and exit poor, right? Absolutely. Um, but the fifth P is patrons, which is your client base. And most business owners follow the 80-20 rule, where 80% of the revenue comes from 20% of their clients. And if they lose a client or two, they can literally be out of business. 
So you really want client diversification, not client concentration. Like in the case of my client that has 65% tied up in MVP, that was not the easiest business to sell because that scares off most buyers, all right? So if you have 60, 70, 80% in one or two or three buyers, that's not good. Buyers are not going to be interested in buying the business unless we find a synergistic buyer. So you need customer diversification. Also, Tony, if a business has been in business 20, 30, 40, 50 years, guess what? Their clients are aging out. Stale. Yeah. So you got to diversify and you got to, you got to, you got to attract new clients, but here's the deal. If your clients have always been baby boomers or Gen X, and now you're going to go after millennials, you better change your approach. <laughs> you better innovate and you better market because millennials do not purchase products and services the same way that Gen X and baby boomers do. They, their buying strategies are completely different. You need to also keep asking your clients, what do you need? What do you want? How can I make it easiest for you to do business with me? Whoever makes it easiest to do business and creates that wild experience is a company that's going to win. So a lot of businesses are going out of business right now, even before COVID, and we didn't get into that. Um, but you got to always be on top of it and know what your clients want and clients need and provide it. A lot of business owners stop asking. The six, the six P, which I think is um, probably the most important to business owners, is profit. We all want to make money, right? And I have clients that come to me all the time, Tony, and they're like, Michelle, Michelle, I have a profit problem. I'm like, you don't have a profit problem. You have a people problem or you have a process problem. Profit is never the problem. It's always the symptom of not operating on one of the other five Ps. If you don't have the right people, you're going to have a problem, a, a profit problem. If you have not protected your IP, your intellectual property attorney, the hiring Tony or another attorney, you're going to have a profit problem. If you don't have customer diversification and patrons, you're going to have, you're going to lose market share. And when you lose market share, you lose profit. So profits are never the problem. And they're always a symptom, but people don't realize that. Business owners don't realize that. They're like, oh, I have a profit problem. No, <laughs> you, you have a 5P problem. Get all the 5Ps working. And I can promise you, you will never have a profit problem. I love the so way you put that. Speeds. And I love that you put profits at the end because I agree with you 100%. I've never heard it put so succinctly. So you you nailed it with always the symptom and not the problem, right? Um, but but that really is the the way that business owners traditionally think is the opposite, right? How do I stick my hand out and get people to put money in it? Well, if you did all the other P's well, people would put money in it. You wouldn't even have to worry about figuring that part of the equation out, right? Yes, it's a part of the process. You know, are we kind of back checking, right? It's the last thing because it's the last thing that you should be kind of back checking to make sure that you're doing all the other things right. So I, I love it. I love the six P structure. This is this is fantastic. This has been educational to me. I've been jotting down notes like crazy. So I'm hoping that the people that are listening or watching are doing the same. I'm also going to put some bullets in the show notes that refer to all of this stuff just at a high level, but fantastic, fantastic stuff. All right. So now that we've covered really the core foundational stuff, let's talk about how the six P's apply to the business life cycle and how people can use them proactively to build to sell. Okay. So the business life cycle is kind of like the adult life cycle. We're born, right? And we're put in an incubator, right? We're born. The doctor nurse puts us right in the incubator, right? Same thing with a business. An idea gets born, goes into an incubator. 90% of ideas never make it out of the incubator, right? So we go from the incubator as a baby, as a business, if we make it out of the incubator as a business, we go into what? The infant stage. The infant stage, you need everything done for you, <laughs> right? You need to be fed. You need to be changed. You need to be clothed. You need to be held. You need everything. Constant 24-hour supervision as an infant. Same thing with a business. When you got a new business, it's going to take you 24-hour supervision. Don't think you're going to sleep when you have a baby. Don't think you're going to sleep when you have a business in the beginning. <laughs> so, and, and, you know, I, I do a presentation on the business life cycles and I compare it to the Toys R Us story because the Toys R Us, you know, went from being born in the incubator to coming out of the incubator. And I want to say it was in 1954 doing this from my memory, but I want to say it was in 1954 that Lazarus uh, started his first 
well, he started his first furniture store. Then he came out with his four baby stores that he called Toys R Us, and he modeled them after the grocery store wow. um, concept, which is just stack things really, really high. And he, by the way, he never changed anything in 70 something years. <laughs> they never innovated. So anyway, so you go from toddler, so you go from infant to toddler, right? As a baby, as a business, you go from infant to toddler. With toddler, you can at least walk. You don't have to be carried everywhere. You can crawl, you can walk, you can stand up, you can feed yourself, you can, you know, do things. But I also call that the terrible twos where you know, they're all over the place. They're into everything. They make messes everywhere they go. Same thing with a business, right? It still needs constant supervision, still needs hand holding, still needs a lot of money. Infants need a lot of money, toddlers need a lot of money, and neither one of them are self-sufficient. And then you go from a toddler into um into a teenager. Well, what is a teenager? A teenager's rebellious. They don't want to listen to anybody because they know it all. Same thing with a teenager business, <laughs> you know. So then they go from teenager to young adult and young adults are finally starting to have some legs. They're finally starting to be able to figure things out. They have some money. They have some successes. They don't need constant supervision. You know, they do listen to others. But then you go from young adult to adult and adult, Tony, is your prime. That's where you're the best of the best. That's where you're functioning at your highest level as an adult person. As an adult business, you're functioning at your highest level. I mean, when when um, Toys R Us was in an adult stage, they reached $11.2 billion in revenue, $11.2 billion. Now, they filed bankruptcy a few years before that, so $11.2 billion. Then you go from adult to what? Senior citizen. So you kind of revert back to a baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where, where you need everything done for you again, right? Where you need more hand-holding, where you need everything done for you. The business is starting to de deteriorate. The human is starting to deteriorate. And Toys R Us in um, 19, not 19, um, I think it was 2016, 2017. So remember, when they're an adult, they were worth over $11 billion. Two years later, Tony, they filed bankruptcy. Three years later, they closed down 1,800 locations. So you can be an adult in business and go to senior citizen. And then what's after senior citizen? Death. <laughs> and you can die very quickly, you know, even uh, having $11 billion. So, you know, just because you're successful and you have $11 billion in a business doesn't mean it's sustainable. <laughs> so Toys R Us dies, you know, so they're senior citizen and they die. Now, something that a business can do that a human can't do, but it depends upon what religion, what religion you believe in. <laughs> but a business can be rebirthed. So Toys R Us is coming back. You know, they have four new stores open, but they have completely changed their model. They're not doing a big grocery store model anymore. They're doing the boutiques. They're creating experiences. They're now starting to finally listen to consumers that don't want that grocery store model. It's too much. It's too overwhelming. You know, um, so does that answer your question? Yes, it does. No, that was brilliant. I, I love the analogy to the, the human life cycle. I've never heard the business life cycle referred to in that way. You always hear more about like early adopter phases and that kind of thing. And, you know, product maturity. I love this one so much more because it's really relatable and easy to understand and and very, very correctly um uh, you know, the metaphors that you used are very correct in the context that, you know, when you're in your terrible twos, for example, there's a lot of crying and complaining and a lot of monitoring that needs to be done and need to focus on the right pain points, not just answer every time that someone screams at you. Right. So, yeah, very, very cool. So now how do we take all of this stuff, knowing that we have this business life cycle that we're looking at? looking at the six P's, right? How do we use all of these things to strategize our business to sell? And then how to, we kind of talked about how to grow through acquisitions, but that's part of the sales process, right? We're looking to get acquired. So how do we build the business towards that? So one big component that we missed that, I'm gonna, that you need to know real quick before I can answer that question is how do you plan your exit? All right. So it's called the STGPS exit model. I, I just want to tell you really quickly because your listeners probably don't know this because really nobody knows this. When I wrote my first book in 2013 and did the research, I learned that 85 to 95% of all startups would fail, right? We all know that. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. So one to five years are the most risky. 
However, when I wrote Exit Rich in 2019 and did the same research, I learned that the business landscape had changed dramatically. In fact, it flip-flopped. Now, it's only 30% of startups will fail. So you wow. startups, go out there and start up your business because wow. you have a lot less risk than you used to. Only 30% of you will fail in those first one to five years. But listen to this. There's 30.2 million businesses in the United States employing over half the U.S. workforce. Small business is the backbone of our economy. If we don't say small business, we lose jobs. When you lose jobs, you lose spending power. When you lose spending power, you lose more business, right? It's a, it's a trickle-down effect. So... Out of 27.6 million companies, those businesses have been in business for 10 years or longer. 70% of those businesses, Tony, 70% are at risk of going out of business. 70% will go out of business. You hear about the public stores like Toys R Us, Kmart, JCPenney's, Montgomery Ward, GNC just closed down, you know, 900 locations. But what you're not hearing about, Tony, are the private businesses on every street corner in every town and every state across our great nation. These businesses are dropping like flies, and these business owners are being forced into selling for pennies on the dollar, close their business, or even worse, file bankruptcy. This is what I'm trying to avoid because it's my mission and my passion to help save one business at a time so we can save the American economy. Now, why do these businesses go out of business? Because number one, they're not operating all six Ps, but number two, they stopped AIM, A-I-M. Let's put that in the show notes, AIM. AIM is always innovate and market. Always innovate and market. Toys R Us that we just talked about in the business life cycle never did anything different in 70 years. Blockbuster saw Netflix come. They saw the writing on the wall. They had the opportunity to buy Netflix. They sat back fat and happy. Now they're out of business. And the story goes on and on and on. You know, JCPenney is having a hard time. Montgomery Ward. These retailers have not changed or innovated or marketed because again, when you have Amazon, when you have other companies stepping up the game, making it easy for, for consumers to do business, then you're not going to be successful unless you innovate. So AIM, always innovate and market. And these businesses have been in business 10 years or longer, stopped innovating. That's why they're going out of business. Plus, they don't plan their exit. So to answer your question, plan your exit by using the STGPS exit model. How do you do that? You do that from day one of starting your business or buying your business. Yes, from day one. Now, I know it sounds crazy, but when you have, when, when you give birth, Tony, have you given birth? <laughs> I have not. I personally have not. And neither has my so, wife, as a matter of fact. We don't have any kids. We have two fur babies, but we weren't there oh, okay. for their births either because so, they were so, rescues. Parents plan where the kids are going to go to preschool. Right. Where the kids are going to go to elementary. Where they're going to go to... Um, you know, middle school, where they're going to go to high school, where they're going to go to college, who they're going to marry, how many kids are going to have, blah, blah, blah. They plan out their entire life. <laughs> they also plan who's in their will. They do estate planning, but they don't do business planning. They don't do business exit planning. They don't think about selling until they have to due to a catastrophic event. That's typically too late to sell your business. You need to plan from day one of buying or starting a business. So, it's like, I call it the GPS exit model. When you want to drive somewhere, Tony, what do you do? You pull out your phone, right? That's right. That's right. What's the first thing we plug in? Google Maps. Yes. And destination, right? We plug in Google Go Maps. We put in our destination. The GPS already knows where we're starting from. Same thing with a business. Plug in your destination, your final end game. What do you want to sell your business for? If you want to sell it for $20 million, put in a $20 million price tag. You know, and it's okay to shoot a little bit high. I'd rather you be high than low. Now, what does the GPS need to know? They need to know where you're starting from. What's your current location? What's your current evaluation? Tony, you'd be surprised. Humans get annual checks up. Most humans get annual checks up every year to make sure they're in good health. They get their car checked up and tuned up, but they never get a checkup tune up on their business to know what their business is worth. You should know what your business is worth every year. There are things that will cause your business to increase in, in valuation and there are things that will cause your business to decrease in valuation. COVID is a perfect example of that. So know where you're starting from. So if you want to sell for $20 million and you're currently worth $5 million, well, now you got a game plan. Let's reverse engineer it. Now determine your time frame. Let's say you want to sell for $20 million, you're worth $5 million, you want to sell in seven years. Great. Who's your buyers going to be now? It's five different types of buyers. I'll tell you who your buyers are not going to be. They're not going to be a first-time buyer because they can't afford a $20 million business. And so they're going to be a turnaround um, specialist because they buy distressed assets. So you'd be selling to a private equity group, a strategic, or, or a serial entrepreneur. 
Those are going to be your buyers. Where does your buyer's financial criteria need to be? And what characteristics does that business have to have for them to spend $20 million? And then most importantly, Tony, nothing ever, ever, ever that's worth having actually gets done if you don't have a powerful why. You got to have a powerful why. That why has to keep you in the game. It has to keep you motivated because in business, it's not easy. You'll have financial obstacles. You have all kinds of different financial storms that you have to weather and different catastrophic events that occur. Your, power, your why has to be so powerful that you're never going to waver. And this is how you build your exit. So then when you determine your GPS exit, what you want to sell your business for, what you're worth today, then you look at your six Ps. Then you evaluate your business on the six Ps. Where are you on the people? Where are you in the product? Where are you in the processes? That's how you build a business that's sustainable, scalable, and when you're ready, sellable so you can exit rich. Brilliant, 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 brilliant. So what are the 10 biggest profit mistakes that businesses are making along the way there, though? Yeah, so a lot of them already mentioned, but not having the right people in the right seats by doing too many things as the owner, doing too many things yourself. When you're doing too many things yourself, other things in the business are going to suffer. You know, I'll partner with a graphics company that called me and um, to sell their business. And this was a few years ago. Um, he called me up and said, and he got me. You don't always get me when you call. But I don't know, something told me, divine intervention said, Michelle, take that call. So I took the call. And I could hear the desperation in his voice, but I could still hear the passion in his voice. And he says, I need to sell my business. You know, it's just me, my wife. We have one employee. We're working out of our home office. Well, we have a garage that we converted into an office that we're working out of. My wife and I are working 14 hours a day. We can't take it anymore. We need to sell. And by the way, they told their one employee that they were going to sell or close our doors. <laughs> so what's that one employee do? They go look for another job. <laughs> So anyway, but he's, and he says, I can't grow the, the business to the next level because I don't have the business acumen to do so. And then he says, but we had the best product, the best quality. We're very well branded in our industry. In fact, we're so well branded that we're turning down 6,000 clients a year. And when he said 6,000 clients a year, I went, ding, 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 ding. Wait a minute. <laughs> We're not selling your business because remember, he has the business. He has no people. He has nothing to sell. On the six Ps, they were working on three Ps. So I partnered with them, took them out of their garage, took them into a, a building, hired employees, hired a chief operating officer, leased equipment. Now they have a business, not a job. And guess what? This man who said, I don't have the business acumen and comes up with better ideas, brilliant ideas. Because when you're in the middle of your chaos, it's chaotic. <laughs> when you're in the fog, it's foggy and it's hard to think transformational and think about these brilliant visionary ideas when you're in the middle of your fog. So one of the biggest mistakes is not having the right people in place. The who doing too many things as the owner. Okay. Products being in a dying industry for too long without pivoting. The other big mistake is processes, which we talked through the six P's, proprietary, not protecting your proprietary. Here's another big one in profit. So not having checks and balances. I can't even begin to tell you how many embezzlement, um, they, how many embezzlement stories I have witnessed firsthand because the business owners don't have checks and balances. I caught a CPA actually stealing money. Well, didn't catch her stealing money, but caught her hiding all of the payables <laughs> during due diligence in her desk. And when she left, I went through her desk and I took out all those payables. I went to the owner. I said, something's fishy here. Something, if you know about this, you're in big trouble. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, well, look at all these invoices. Come to find out she was embezzling from him. So I caught her during due diligence. So that's a huge profit mistake is not having checks and balances to oversee your money. We talked about not checking up on your, on your IP, not getting those trademarks, et cetera. Another big mistake is, is not having backup plans. Like let's say that you're manufacturing in China and COVID happens and the manufacturing completely shuts down. You're, you're out of business. Another big problem is, is employers having 1099s 
when they should have W-2s. Because if you uh, have a warehouse, that a manufacturing plant that has 1099s in their manufacturing and warehouse, and I said, listen to me, if somebody loses an arm, if they lose a toe, if they lose a finger, if something happens, you're not only out of business, but you will lose everything you've ever worked for. So those are just some of the profit mistakes, but I mean, we could go on and on and on. Yeah, that's that's pretty incredible. And I couldn't agree with you more because... I I have had clients who we were working together. This is in my law practice. Obviously, I won't share any information about them, but we, in due diligence, discovered that somebody was embezzling or somebody was doing something that the owner had no idea about. And a lot of times it's, you know, they beat themselves up also sometimes. How did I miss this? How did I not notice? And it's because you just don't have, going back to the very first words that you talked about in this discussion, you need to have core processes in place, right? You need to be strategic. You need to build that foundation because you got to have you, those checks and balances. Mm-hmm. If you build a business on shaky ground, it's never going to be well structured. Right. It's just never right. going to happen. Yeah. So that's, and you know, that's great. That's another big point that you just brought up that they never knew it happened and never saw it happen. And here's the problem that I see a lot of owners do is that. You know, a lot of owners won't let go. They think they have to do everything. You know, they have to control everything. Well, there's other owners on the other side of the spectrum that says, well, I got good people in place that I know that they're good. I'm not going to check in on them. They never inspect anything. Those are the owners that get taken to the cleaners. So I always say trust, but verify. Trust, but verify. Inspect what you expect. Even in my own businesses, I, I... I inspect everything. <laughs> Believe it or not, I inspect everything. I have these checks and balances. I trust and verify because I've seen too many situations where owners have lost millions upon millions upon millions of dollars. And this could have been avoided. It could have been prevented. But the but the owners trust too much. You know, it's okay to trust, but verify. You gotta verify. Yeah. Even with your kids, you got to, you got to verify your kids. You can't just trust your kids and not go through their phone or go through their drawers. <laughs> Taking That's it back to the get, family analogy. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll add to that a little bit. One of the things that I think businesses just have not paid attention to. And as we start to creep more and more forward into the future, you need to add to this is cybersecurity as well, right? not just financial verification, you really need to stay on top of it. Talk about proprietary, right? Everything today can be easily transferred with the plugin of a USB thumb drive. They're giant now. I have a thumb drive that's four gigs. I can, you know, just plug it in and download almost anything, right? So all of your trade secret stuff, which goes right back into your your six Ps, into the proprietary, into your agreements, into your IP, all of those things, you need to be on top of that. An employee leaves, they can take everything with them. And then on top of that, if you don't have the right provisions in your contracts, going back to this, even with the people in your organization, you're trust but verify, right? Trust but verify. I trust you. We have a good relationship. But you know, while we're going into this new marriage together, let's just get it down on paper that we're going to be cool. We're not going to cheat each other, right? We're going to be good to each other. And when you leave, you're not only going to not take money, et cetera, but you're not going to take my client list or my vendor list or all of these things that I've worked for and built as trade secrets that people forget all the time. That could be a major they issue. They do. And then you also should have that clause in your agreement with your employees that you own their work. Right. Because exactly. if somebody, you know, does video, generates videos, or write blog, writes blogs or does anything creative for you. They could come back and say, no, I did that. I own that. So you got to make sure that you have clauses. I actually learned that from my podcast interview and an intellectual property attorney. She told me that. And I'm like, oh, let me change my contracts real quick. <laughs> but I learned things too. But, Brilliant. Um, that's right. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, cybersecurity is huge. I mean, that's why there's so much embezzlement right now in the real estate industry is because um, a lot of... Um, how do I say this without offending anybody? Um, a lot of real estate agents have been in the industry for years and years and years, and they're not very technology savvy, and they don't even password protect their phone. 
So hackers can get in there. There's been many times where they've stolen a real estate agent's phone or they've been able to get in there. They've been able to get the details of the closing. They've been able to get the escrow transferred to their escrow account. I mean, this happens all the time. There are more, con- you know, I've said this not too long ago before COVID. There's more con artists coming out of the woodwork than ever before. You know, I have con artists that can't come to me and I had three in a row. <laughs> they came to me and gave me LOIs on some of my larger transactions, you know, one that was 50, 15 million, one was 20, one was 30. And I Google, I, I, I trust, but verify, we inspect. So we'll Google search. We'll do, we'll do, well, well we can't really do background checks, but we'll Google search. We'll do a Google review. I had one guy give me an $18 million offer. When we pulled him up on Google maps, his, his office address was a shack <laughs> in Tennessee. <laughs> so, and then I had another one give me false financial, like gave me a, uh, financial statements and main statements, and they were falsified because there were spelling errors. There were grammatical errors. And then the address wasn't even the same address that he originally gave us. So he cut and paste from something else. And this was from a large bank outside of in Dubai. So, you know, even in our, especially in my industry, before we even go to a seller, we do our research on the buyer, you know, so we have to trust but verify. We have to inspect what we expect. Absolutely. So how do you, this is going to be my favorite part, I think, of the discussion, but how do you create a bidding war? What are your tips and techniques, your best practices for people who are listening to help to boost the interest in their business? So the best way to create a bidding war, it's it's really, I'm not going to say impossible because nothing is impossible in my opinion, but it's extremely difficult for a business owner to do this on their own because business owners are trying to maintain confidentiality, right? Business owners don't know what buyers to go after. So they just don't know all the intricate details on selling a business. So it's very hard for business owners to do this. But the way that I do it is I obviously, when I evaluate businesses, I don't just evaluate them on the normal stuff like discounted cash flow, industry approach, market approach, asset approach. I also I also value them on what I call the six P approach, which we've already been through the six P's. I evaluate them based upon the six P's and the synergies. If it's a business that has database, very well branded, contracts in place, we go to market without a price. You know, we'll come up with a range in my evaluation, but we'll go to market without a price because I know what buyers are going to pay what for what synergies. So the only way that you can really create a buying a, a bidding war is to know and understand the synergies that the seller has and really understand the synergies that buyers are looking for and how these synergies can really catapult that buyer's business to the next level. And not only that, but buyers can sometimes acquire businesses and increase the EBITDA double the EBITDA in some cases because of economy of scales, because of duplicate operations that can streamline things, that can cut costs immediately and increase EBITDA substantially. So we know what buyers can do that. We know what synergies they're looking for. And we have enough buyers that we can bring multiple buyers to, to the table. You can't create a bidding war if you got one buyer. <laughs> and most business owners who try to sell their business have one buyer. Right. And exactly. most of the time that one buyer falls apart. Or they're working with a broker that's just too local, doesn't think big enough sometimes. Or they're working with a broker that doesn't understand the six Ps, doesn't understand synergies, exactly. Exactly. doesn't even know that there's five different types of buyers, you know, doesn't really understand how to create that bidding war. You know, I, look, I always say, you know, if you try to sell business on your own, it's like heart surgery. If you need heart surgery, you're going to cut your chest open and pull your, pull your heart out. Are you going to hire? Are you going to hire the best? There are times to DIY things, and they're generally speaking not when it comes to your business, right? And 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 so you're not. So you're going to go to the best heart surgeon. So if you're trying to sell the biggest asset, you want to make sure you hire the best advisor you can possibly find. Absolutely, and not some somebody who's you know sold a couple of businesses or you know sold a couple of pizzerias. You want to make sure that you get the best advisor that you possibly can. But speaking of economies of scale, that's why franchising is so attractive, generally speaking, to investors or uh, individuals who are looking to acquire businesses because they're super scalable, right? I mean, 
some of the biggest franchises in the world run off of an office with six to 15 people in it, you know? So yeah, franchises are great because they are super scalable. Uh, they're great to sell. Um, they're, they're great to buy for the right buyer. Now, franchisors are great to buy for lots of buyers because it's a franchisor. Exactly. The franchise itself is typically best for first-time buyers. Yes, exactly. If you're a, a budding franchisee, although one of the things I, I, we discussed this as well, I do work with franchisee clients on occasion, and I've worked in the franchise space as an attorney for a little while now. And one of the things I mention to my clients all the time is this isn't really legal advice, and I'm not telling you whether or not to buy the franchise, right? To buy into the system as a first-time buyer, but know that this is very different than you starting your own business. You still have this relationship with the franchisor where the franchisor is going to give, lend you their system and guide you in how to run the franchise, but you're not going to have sort of carte blanche freedom to start innovating and reinventing the wheel. So if that's your style, maybe franchising isn't the right thing for you, but, but franchising can be a very, very good opportunity for people to quite frankly, obtain the American dream in a lot of cases. Absolutely. And I've sold a lot of franchises. I've sold probably three, four or 500 franchises in addition to businesses. Wow. Um, and this is what I always say too, and the franchisors are going to hate me for saying this and that's okay. <laughs> but I always say to buyers, don't buy a new franchise, buy an existing franchise because a new franchise, a new franchise you know, um, it's typically going to cost you more money than an existing franchise. I'll give you an example. Baskin-Robbins. I sold a Baskin-Robbins years and years and years ago. And this Baskin-Robbins, I think we sold it for $175,000. A brand new Baskin-Robbins, by the time you pay the franchise fees, by the time you fund the location, you do the build out, you do the electrical, do the AC, you do all that stuff. You buy the inventory, you buy the assets, um, you, you do all the requirements that the franchisor requires. A new Baskin Robbins was like $300,000, 300 to 400,000. And guess what you don't have? You don't have clients. You don't have cash flow. You don't have a track record. You can buy an existing franchise, a lot of times half the price than what you can buy a new franchise because a new franchise is based upon the franchise fees. It's based upon renovation, build out. It's based upon inventory. It's based upon buying all your furniture, fixtures, equipment up front. It's based on all these things. And you can get it financed very easily because most franchisors are pre-approved SBA for their franchisees. Exactly. However, an existing franchise is based upon the numbers. <laughs> right, exactly. So, you have books and records to look at. Yeah, so that franchise I think was doing sixty thousand, seventy-five thousand dollars net income a year, and I think we got them like one seventy-five for it. Whereas a brand new one would be three hundred. So always, always, always look for an existing franchise before you go start a new franchise because what happens? Like I have a lawyer friend, an attorney friend of mine, and he has a very successful law practice. He went and started one of those smoothie franchises, not Smoothie King. Some something else. Anyway, he starts his franchise. It might have been food too. I don't remember. He calls me up, panicking. Michelle, Michelle, I need your help. I need you to sell this for me. I go, what did you do? Because <laughs> I bought this franchise. I go, why would you ever do that without talking to me? Right. Because I don't know. I thought it was a good deal, and I wanted a business on the side. And I said, I get that, but you're an attorney. And what do you do when people don't show up to work? You can't just leave your business. Exactly. You can't just leave your exactly. law practice. Are you going to go run the cash register? And so he was losing money. Employees weren't coming to work. He was upside down in debt about, I don't know, half a million dollars, maybe more. And he's like, well, I want my full investment back. I said, you're not going to get it back. I said, all you're going to get back is maybe the value of the assets. That's it. You're not going to get it back. So, so many people open up new franchises thinking they could do it on the side. Like I was going to do it when I worked at Xerox, but I also had a lot of business experience. I also owned other businesses before. He never owned a business before. So you can't just go buy a franchise on the side and think it's easy, you know, but it's always better to buy an existing one because an existing franchise is operating on some of the six P's. They might have the people in place. They probably have processes because most franchisors have processes. You know, they have a good product. Um, you know, maybe they're not as profitable as they could be, but you can make it more profitable. But you can always buy, most of the time you can buy an existing franchise less expensive than a new franchise. 
Definitely. Okay. And so that's before- not, none of that's in the book. That's on my next book on buying businesses. Love that. So speaking <laughs> of the book, before we let you go, and sure. I want to be respectful of your time, and I appreciate you giving us all this time and information. It's been a fantastic episode. But tell us about what readers, our listeners, what people who are watching can expect if they go out and grab a copy of Exit Rich. So what you're going to expect of Exit Rich is 20 years of me being in the trenches, 20 years of me seeing what business owners do well, what business owners don't do well, the mistakes that business owners make, the mistakes, the pitfalls to avoid, um, all the experience that I've done over the last 20 years. Plus, Sharon Lecter is my co-author who wrote Rich Dad, Poor Dad with Robert Kiyosaki, and she also wrote several books in the Napoleon Hill Foundation. She is my co-author. So she's a CPA and a financial literacy expert and has been an advisor to many different presidents. So you get a, a mentor's corner. After every chapter, she writes what we call a mentor's corner to further illustrate what I'm talking about, but really give her own perspective. Because she has a little bit different twist than me, or she sees a little bit differently than I do. We're still on the same page, but it's just a different perspective. And what's nice about it, too, is her husband is an intellectual property attorney, and he gives his point across as well. Or she'll go to him and say, what do you think about this? So you got an M&A advisory expert. I'm a senior business analyst, too. Plus, you got a CPA and you got an attorney all in one book. That's amazing. (laughs) And the book was endorsed by Steve Forbes and, you know, Tom Hopkins, Brian Tracy, Les Brown, um, Jack Canfield, Mark Victor Hansen. It's an Inc. original. So you'll you'll get everything you need to know to build a, again, sustainable, scalable, and when you're ready, sellable business. It's not just for people who want to sell their business. It's for people to build a business that actually will be sellable one day. And so also, if they go to exitrichbook.com because we're in the middle of pre-sales, they can get the book for $24.79, which is less expensive than Amazon, plus it includes shipping. So for $24.79, we will email you the digital download immediately. We will send you the hardcover when it comes out in January. Plus, you'll get a lifetime membership to Exit Rich Book Club where you'll receive video trainings like this of me taking deep dives into different techniques and strategies, plus documents. You know, owners ask me all the time, Michelle, I don't even know what an organizational chart looks like. <laughs> What's an employee handbook look like? What's a non-compete look like? I have owners ask me, well, Michelle, I've never even seen an LOI, a letter of intent, or a purchase agreement. What does a due diligence check- checklist look like? What do closing docs look like? It's all in there. It's all in there for your review and your download. And we keep adding more content all the time because I want sellers to get familiar, familiar with, with these different documents because all these documents are imperative to run your business and to sell your business. They will also receive a 30-day membership into Club CEOs, which is a membership I founded of like-minded entrepreneurs where we do Q&As, where we ask those questions, what business are you in? What business should you be in? You know, and we do hot seats. So they get all of that for $24.79 at exitrichbook.com. Awesome. And uh, I'll post a link to that in our show notes. So those of you who are listening, go ahead and check out the book. <laughs> go buy the book now because it's a limited time only, you know, right. because once exactly. the book comes out, then we won't have all those um, additional value that we're giving. And then if they want to um, follow me, if they want to see my other websites, they can text Michelle to 888-526-5750. And we'll post a link to that as well. All this information will be in the show notes for those of you who are listening. Maybe you're in your car, maybe you're working out, maybe you're doing the dishes. Don't worry about it. It'll be in the show notes waiting for you. Go ahead, check out the links, check out Michelle's website, her book. Amazing, amazing, amazing conversation. Thank you so much, Michelle. We're so grateful for your time and uh, have, have a great end of the year and to a prosperous 2021. Thank you so much for having me. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to all your listeners.